Welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. It is week two of the Biden administration, and it is time for one of my favorite things, a Supreme Court update. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson. I'm joined by the show's co-host, Joe Armstrong. And you've heard me say it before, but there are so many important things that run through the federal judiciary and the Supreme Court. And we're going to give you an update on a lot of those today. We're going to talk briefly about this new commission that was formed to study the federal judiciary and the Supreme Court, think about maybe ways to reform it. Also, it might just be a political act to placate some people who want to reform the Supreme Court. We're going to talk about a decision that makes it easier for President Biden to fire federal officials that President Trump appointed. We're going to talk about the recent dismissal of the emoluments clause cases, a clause in the Constitution that we didn't used to talk about, but we did during the Trump administration. And uh, finally, we're going to talk about abortion rights and then what to look for at the end of the Supreme Court term. Joe, I'm sure you can hear it in my voice. I love talking all things Supreme Court because it really matters to us in our daily lives. Absolutely, Jessica, chomping at the bit. It's always lovely to be here to talk about these things with you. Let's jump right in. The Biden administration has started governing quickly and decisively on many, many fronts. Today, we're going to update you on how the Supreme Court fits into that. Now, Donald Trump has notably appointed one third of the current Supreme Court justices in just one term, just four years. President Obama, as you may remember, made just two appointments in eight years in his two terms. Now, there have been many calls to reform the Supreme Court, and Joe Biden is wasting no time in moving the ball a bit there. Jessica, can you please tell us a little bit about how this new commission on reform of the Supreme Court is going to work or may work? Yes. And I'm just going to emphasize something that you said, which is that President Trump in one term appointed a third of the Supreme Court. And again, one term where he was elected, fairly elected, I believe, but elected not by a majority of the people who showed up to the ballot box. And that's part of why people are talking about whether or not we should reform the Supreme Court, because so much of who gets to control the court is really just a trick of fate in terms of who's president when there are more vacancies. I mean, think about, Joe, one of, I think for us, what was one of the most meaningful episodes that we did, which was just a few hours after Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed, because we talked about not just the loss of her as a human being, but what it means for the entire country when a really powerful justice passes away. And you know, everybody's heard me say this, but to the extent that you really care about healthcare reform, environmental justice, criminal justice reform, uh, voting rights, campaign finance, First Amendment rights, religious rights, then you have to care about the Supreme Court and the federal judiciary. We spend a lot of time thinking about who our lawmakers are, what they're proposing. We also need to spend time thinking about who our federal judges are and how they're appointed and whether or not that should be reformed. So, Joe, in answer to your question, you know, the calls for reform really, I think, came to a head when, in the wake of Justice Ginsburg's passing, Justice Amy Coney Barrett was nominated and confirmed in record speed. And a lot of progressives and a lot of, frankly, I think, independents thought, 
okay, well, Justice Scalia passed away, what was it, nine and a half months before an election. Justice Ginsburg passes away when people are already voting, and the seat is filled. So I think a lot of progressives and, frankly, probably a lot of independents were looking at what happened when Justice Scalia passed away about 10 months before the election. No hearings were held for his nominated replacement, Merrick Garland, who looks like he will become attorney general. And comparing that to what happened when Justice Ginsburg passed away, people were already voting. And Justice Amy Coney Barrett, of course, did get her confirmation hearings and was confirmed. And a lot of critics of the president of Republicans said, maybe we should, quote unquote, pack the court, which I think is a terrible term for increase the number of members of the court. I think that this is, in my view, a short-term fix to a long-term problem. And the idea being exactly what you and I talked about, that President Trump appointed a third of the Supreme Court, a really good percentage, close to that percentage of the federal bench. And so the only way to, quote-unquote, take back power or even things out is to increase the number of judges, maybe both lower court federal judges and Supreme Court justices. Now, some people have heard me say this in other forms before. That means that there are more justices and might help in the very short term, but we will have another Republican president at some point, and that person could then have even more seats to fill. So I'm not sure that this is really the long-term solution we're all looking for. And during the campaign, then candidate Biden kind of famously said, you know, I'm not putting my thumb on the scale, let's have a commission, which is, you know, political speak for punt. Now, I think one of the other reforms on the table is the possibility of limiting the term of federal judges. Right now, under the Constitution, they have lifetime terms. And what you could do, at least for the Supreme Court, is say, you know what, you get a nice long 18-year term, we're going to stagger those terms so every president gets some appointments. And I think that would make a lot more sense. It would be a much more elegant solution. But increasing the number of judges is something you can do by legislation. Getting rid of lifetime appointment is something that would require a constitutional change, which is all really long way of saying it's much ado about commissioning, but maybe not that much else. Yeah, and then we get into fights, Jessica, about originalism, about the Constitution, about can it be changed, can it not be changed. It brings all other slings and arrows into the conversation that make changing the Constitution even harder. Now, Jessica, as you said, there may be some changes coming down the pike. Time will tell there. But the business of the sitting court rolls on. So now let's talk about some of the more recent Supreme Court decisions and how they're likely to affect things in the Biden administration. Now, first up here, Jessica, is the power of the president to fire certain federal officials. On this very show, on a prior episode, we talked about the Consumer Financial Protection Board, the CFPB, and a decision from the Supreme Court session that made it easier for the president to fire some federal officials. Now that there is a new administration, I can't imagine that Biden and company are all too eager to keep Trump loyalists around. There is no love lost between those two guys. We've talked before about how changes like this affect subsequent administrations and their ability to govern. How will these specific changes affect Biden's ability to fire federal officials? Well, it will make it easier. And I remember this was really in the beginning of the podcast. I I remember I was recording, I think, under a comforter to try and um, not comfort myself, but to try and um, create a little bit of a sound barrier so it didn't have a terrible echo for our listeners. 
And as you said, the case involved the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and the specific issue was that agency had a single director, and the way that the legislation creating that agency was written, it said the director could only be fired by the president for cause, meaning the president has to point to a reason before firing that person. And the argument was, and this was a successful argument, that the president should be able to fire somebody not just for cause, but also at will, which is obviously a much lower standard. It just means because I want to. And that the president has to be able to fire at will because otherwise it will infringe on executive authority. And the court, as we said, said, yeah, that's right. The president needs to be able to fire the director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau at will. And this is, I think now, again, good news for President Biden, because he has the power to fire some similarly situated, we talked about, federal officials. Um, We're probably looking at two other regulatory agencies, because those are the two that only have a single director, not like a multi-member board of directors. And that's the Social Security Administration, which is in charge of, not insignificantly, the country's biggest government program, and the Federal Housing Finance Agency, which oversees the mortgage market. And just allow me as a law professor a moment to say, this is why we have to be careful when we say, oh, it's conservatives who are trying to whittle away at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. It was that, but it was a deeper question in that case about how much power does any president have? And that's the question that we're seeing play out now. And that's why, you know, these cases, again, they don't always fall neatly along political lines, particularly when it brings up a big legal question about whose power is it or whose authority is it. Okay, I promise I'm the soapbox is put to the side, Joe. Thank you, Jessica. It seems to me sometimes what comes around goes around from administration to administration to administration. So let's move on, Jessica. Let's talk about emoluments and conflicts of interest. Some of us may remember last July when Donald and Ivanka Trump were pictured with Goya products after Goya CEO Robert Unanwe made some public comments in support of Trump. Now, on a side note here, drop an asterisk here. Goya's board of directors just last week censored Unanwe banning him from speaking to the press after recent comments about the legitimacy of the 2020 presidential election. So put a pin on that. Now, although Goyagate generated a lot of media attention last summer after there were questions about elected officials using the office of the presidency to shill for specific products or companies, there were a pair of legitimate emoluments clause cases involving the Trump administration before the Supreme Court until this week. So, Jessica, what happened there? Will we ever have an answer about what the emoluments clause really is? Not in the short term. Now, as you said, Goyagate, as you have named it, it didn't specifically bring up an emoluments clause question. It brings up this larger question that we've spent so much time thinking about and talking about, which is conflict of interest issues and corruption and basically misusing public office for private gain. Now, the emoluments clause There are actually two emoluments clauses. These are not things that at least I used to think deeply about when it came to the Constitution, but of course, these are some new clauses we learned about over the last four years. And the foreign emoluments clause, which is really the one at issue here, 
basically prohibits members of the federal government from receiving emoluments, which we take to mean like stuff of value, from foreign states or foreign heads of state. And it really is kind of a conflict of interest provision in the Constitution. It's kind of an anti-corruption provision. And the arguments here were really whether President Trump was violating the Foreign Emoluments Clause by profiting off of his presidency, essentially because foreign heads of state were staying in the Trump hotels, were patronizing other Trump businesses, and that he was therefore, at least indirectly, getting a thing of value from foreign heads of state. Now, most of these cases, we never had an answer because the big question was, who has standing, meaning who is the right person, who's injured enough to bring these cases? And so none of them made their way all the way to the Supreme Court. But what the court did this week is they said, you know what? These emoluments clause cases, they apply to the sitting president. And Donald J. Trump is no longer the sitting president. So we're going to dismiss those cases. They even wiped some of them off of the books. And, you know, again, the punchline is basically where, Joe, where we started, which is we still don't know exactly who can sue Uh, in order to get a remedy under the emoluments clause. And we still don't know exactly what violates it. And you know what? Sometimes that's okay. Not every open constitutional question, I think, needs to be answered right away. Sometimes the better answer is just to elect people who don't bring us to the brink of an emoluments clause blow up. Well, actually, Joe, with that, we should remind people Even though President Trump is out of office and therefore the emoluments clause cases have ended, he still does, and probably with renewed force, face criminal exposure, potentially on the federal and state level. And we're going to be talking in more detail about that in a future episode. Right now, we're going to talk about another issue involving the Supreme Court, though. Right, Jessica. And this next topic here is something that gets people's hackles up very, very quickly. Abortion rights are one of the most visual issues when it comes to the Supreme Court. I know there were some recent Supreme Court decisions in that area. Can you fill us in on the latest developments there? Yeah, Joe, I think you and I actually even talked about this briefly in one of our very first episodes. But when the pandemic began, states started restricting the number of medical procedures that people could have. But then a lot of conservative states started restricting the ability for women to obtain an abortion. And Texas is like the poster child of this particular phenomenon. So last year when COVID-19 really hit, the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, ordered a stop of all non-essential medical procedures. And then the Texas attorney general said this applies to virtually all abortions. And Texas wasn't alone in this kind of pattern of the story. Uh, There were other states that tried to do similar things. And the idea is that this was allegedly to preserve hospital resources. But what we know is that the vast majority of people who get abortions don't go to a hospital, don't get them in a hospital, and therefore there is no use of hospital resources. I know everybody is going to read this as a comment on abortion access, and I'm actually just trying to point out the science here. So the Texas governor says, we're stopping all non-essential medical procedures. 
The Texas Attorney General then says that applies to all abortions. The order is challenged. The lower court strikes down the order and says it's too broad. And then the very conservative Fifth Circuit in two different opinions reverses that and says, you know what, we're going to go ahead and uphold what is essentially a temporary ban on all abortions. Now, fast forward briefly to the summer, the governor of Texas, Governor Abbott, issues a new order that does allow women to obtain access to abortions in Texas. But he asked the Supreme Court to keep that Court of Appeals ruling upholding his original order on the books. And since then, courts have cited to that Fifth Circuit decision about the power of the government to limit activities during a pandemic. And, you know, it even had some effect when it comes to abortion rights. And that's why uh, people went to the Supreme Court and said, you have to wipe those Fifth Circuit decisions off the books. And that's what the Supreme Court did this week. So those Fifth Circuit decisions that, again, upheld what de facto became a total ban on access to abortion in Texas, those decisions are not on the books anymore. This isn't a huge abortion rights decision, but whenever it comes to abortion in the Supreme Court, it's a big decision. So that's where we are on this particular case. I think there was some kind of misunderstanding about exactly what this meant. So hopefully this clears it up for everybody. Thank you very much, Jessica. Now we find ourselves in the midst of the second half of the 2021 Supreme Court term. Now, tying in Biden to this, as we did at the beginning, will the Biden administration change tack in any of these big cases before the court for the rest of this term? Maybe. The typical convention is that you try not to have the administration wildly change approaches, particularly in the middle of cases that are already before the Supreme Court. And But that might change this time around. And particularly, we're looking at the health care case, the Affordable Care Act case. That case, again, brings up basically two issues. One is the individual mandate that requires people to buy insurance or pay a penalty. Now there's really a non-existent penalty. Is that constitutional? And then second, if that's not, can the rest of the Affordable Care Act stand? Now, we've talked about that case in a lot of detail, so I won't do it now, except to say that I think the new acting Solicitor General, which is the administration's representative, really, in the Supreme Court, might in this case say, you know what, in the long-term interests of justice, we are going to change our strategy, and we're going to tell you very clearly You can strike down the individual mandate, but the rest of the Affordable Care Act must stand. And so that's a really interesting one to look at to see if there will be this kind of abrupt shift. Usually solicitor generals and acting solicitor generals try not to do that administration to administration, at least not uh, really openly right away. You know, in terms of other big cases to look out for, There's another case dealing with the power of the Department of Homeland Security and a big election law case uh, coming out of Arizona. So, Joe, I know we're going to be talking about all of those before the term ends. Thank you, Jessica. You do make these things comprehensible to those of us who are not law school professors. So stick with us, everybody. We will keep you up to date on all the developments in the Supreme Court for the rest of the session. The end of the term is just a few months away, Jessica. I know it's January right now, almost February, but summer is coming. 
You say summer is coming as I'm looking out my window and there is about to be a torrential downpour. But yes, summer is coming. Joe, you and I will together celebrate when daylight savings time comes back around. And until then, we have a great episode coming up on the filibuster. We have at least, I think, three more members of Congress coming on the show. And we're just so excited to talk about all of these issues with you. So, Joe, thank you. Thank you, Jessica. Stay tuned, everybody. Lots more to come. 